Hello, movie truthers. Welcome to this week's episode of Truth and Movies. I'm Leila Latif. I'm Hafez Ellis Ross. And I'm Ayanna Murray. On the show this week, a pair of Welsh twins have a bond that proves destructive in The Silent Twins. It's a classic tale of a puppet who dreams of being a real boy in Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio. And on film clubs, more twin mischief in the 1942 film noir The Dark Mirror. All coming up on Truth and Movies, a Little White Lies podcast. So, Ayana and Hafa, it's very nice to have you both back on. It hasn't been too long, so we won't do a proper big intro because I'm sure regular listeners know exactly who you are. But uh, what have you both been up to recently? I have been writing, watching films. It is screener season, so I'm trying to catch up on everything that I've missed over this past year, which is a surprising amount, but it's been good. God, I'm finding it amazing. You watch so much. Has there anything that you've missed? You've done all the major festivals, basically. There's. It's surprising the amount of films that I've missed, like the number of films I've missed. Some Netflix releases. I was watching Lady Chatterley's Lover just the other day. All those Did you like releases. it? Mm, not that much. <laughs> I quite not enjoyed it. Oh, I really liked it. I thought it was very hot. Maybe I should have seen it in a big screen where people were just going at it. It would have been nice and steamy, <laughs> but I saw it on a tiny television, so maybe that didn't do it justice. I don't know. What about you? What have you been up to? I've actually been falling really behind on movie watching lately. I've barely watched anything lately, which is really bad. But most recently, I watched Glass Onion again, which I feel like, I don't know what the verdict is on that film, but I really enjoy it. For what Me it too. is. Um, but I've been talking to a few people who are in a different mind about it and um, I don't think it quite lives up to the original in just in terms of the just like the mystery of it but I think all the characters are really fun. I think the location is great and I just love Daniel Craig a lot so I really enjoyed Glass Onion. But yeah other than that I really haven't been watching that much recently. Just been like binging um, White Lotus is what I've been doing. Yeah, just one left to go until we find out who dies. What? Exciting. <laughs> I haven't watched a single episode, so now that I know someone dies, I'm going to go into I love mystery TV shows. Yeah, someone dies right at the beginning with the White Lotuses. I think that's the pattern that's going to happen. It's just going to be a fancy White Lotus hotel. Someone dies and then we go back a week. And oh, is it a week? They seem to be on holiday for a really long time. I think it's just a week, but a lot happens in that week. Someone needs to start investigating these White Lotus hotels because people keep dying in them. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, we've got kind of quite a fun week ahead of like kind of twin movies. We've got Silent Twins, which is obviously about a pair of real life twins. Dark Mirror, which is a film noir about twins, but also Pinocchio, which is a different sort of twin movie because there was another Pinocchio that came out this year. And it's that weird thing that occasionally happens where two really similar things get released at the same time and you, you kind of have to choose a side which film are you backing. Uh, do you guys have any like favourite examples of that sort of thing? Yes, I think if someone has any idea who I am or has heard of me before, they probably heard me talking about Deep Impact, which is, and I'm saying this entirely seriously, one of the best films of all time. Deep Impact has everything. It has Leone, it has Morgan Freeman as the president of the United States. It has emotional depth. It has universe depth. It has science depth. It has a massive wave. It is incredible. It doesn't have Ben Affleck, but it's pretty great. Yeah, so you that for you, Michael Bay's Armageddon doesn't hold a patch to it? No. <laughs> it doesn't come close, and whoever says it does is objectively wrong. 
Well, you know, maybe they're just massive fans of Aerosmith. Um, Ayana, what about you? Do you have any faves that may be less bizarre, perhaps, than Rafa's insistence that Deep Impact is a masterpiece? Well, I wouldn't say it's one of the best films of all time, but one I go really hard for is A Bug's Life, which I still think is very underrated. I don't think it gets talked about enough as like one of the best Pixar films. Maybe people wouldn't agree with that, but I think it still stands the test of time as one of the best Pixar films. And then in that same year, Ants came out, which is a film I haven't seen, but Woody Allen is in it. So I elect to never watch that film and live in ignorance or bliss that um, A Bug's Life is the better one. Yeah, um, I think I have seen both and Ants as much as I'm sure that was very good animation or difficult animation at the time, they're so angular and severe. It's actually quite unpleasant aesthetically. Bug's Life has got a much kind of sweeter look to it. I love the whole world building in it in the beginning of the film where it's kind of like establishing how the, the colony works with them moving. I think it's like seeds or stones or whatever, but I love the whole like mechanics of it and like as a kid I thought that was so fun like oh wouldn't it be great to be an ant in this this colony and just live your simple life of moving seeds about yeah I mean ants seems like such a weird film in retrospect because you just think like who is like commissioning children's films and was like you know who kids love Woody (laughs) Ant and also like they yassified the ants before (laughs) yassified it and they look like they walk around like strutting like supermodels even though it yeah, I think A Bug's Life is a much better film in depicting bugs. <laughs> if there's even a qualifier, a quantifier. Wow, heady hikes indeed. But um, I haven't seen the other Pinocchio, but by all accounts, it's it's bad, right? It's certainly not good. I wouldn't know. Yeah, I mean, it definitely kind of disappeared without a trace. I haven't heard anything of like Tom Hanks is going to be in Oscar contention. Or I think they knew perhaps that they were the lesser of the 2022 Pinocchios. Yeah, it was an odd one. Um, it came and went without a peep. And it isn't like it's a small production, an obscure production, because there was one in 2019 that was fairly obscure, the Italian one. But this one is directed by Robert Zemeckis. It's a Disney film. It has Tom Hanks and it was properly buried. You can only hope that when I talk to you about Guillermo del Toro, he, he doesn't deserve such a burial. But yes, we should move on to our films. You can join our community of film lovers by becoming a Little White Lies member. You'll receive exclusive perks and an insider's view into the world of Little White Lies while directly supporting our independent film journalism. Search Little White Lies membership via our search engines and click through to the Steady HQ page for a detailed breakdown of the plans. Now on to the movies. The Silent Twins is based on the lives of June and Jennifer Gibbons, real-life identical twins who grew up in Wales and became known as the Silent Twins because of their refusal to communicate with anyone but each other. So, Ayana, were you aware of this real-life story beforehand? I had read about it before, and it is such a strange tale. I was honestly not aware of this story at all and I actually remember because I was at Cannes this year and it and the film played there I ended up missing it so just the entire thing the movie the story everything passed me by but it is such a strange story but also a story of just like these great injustices that were happening I wouldn't say under people's noses but you know it went ignored for a long long time 
So yeah, the story was um, was really fascinating. Yeah, it's that thing now when we go back to the 80s, it's with a very different lens. Like we don't have the sign of same poppy nostalgia for it. But Hafa, this is from the director of The Law, Agnieszka Szymanska. Were, were you a fan of hers? Did you kind of come into it with expectations? Because I, I, I really loved The Law myself. Um, I liked The Lure. I wasn't a particular big fan of it, but I knew the story of the twins beforehand. I went through a weird teenage point in my life where I became highly obsessed with true crime and <laughs> psychiatrical hospitals and all of those weird things that you sometimes navigate when you're kind of coming of age. And I read all these books on Broadmoor and they were one of the biggest Broadmoor cases, if we can put it like that. And I was really fascinated with their story. Uh, I knew who they were. So I was drawn into the film because of it. And I did see it in Cannes and it was not one of my highlights. I thought it started really interestingly with the narrative choices that she makes in blending this fairy tale and what is going on and, and this world building. I love how they did the opening credits. I'm not going to spoil it for if you haven't seen it because I think it's something cool to see it for the first time without knowing it's coming. And I thought there were some inspired moments in there, but it never really came together cohesively to me in the creative way that I thought that she was trying to put together. I guess what I liked about the law was kind of bringing in all these different elements that you wouldn't normally see together of like mermaids, body horror, musicals. This also, Ayana, kind of has quite a lot of different things going on. Like we've kind of got, like, is it, would you describe it as stop motion in there as well? Yeah, I'd say stop motion. Like these animation sequences where she recreates Jennifer and June's story. There's this one, I guess I could spoil it because it's out there on the internet. Um, there's this story, is about this family or this couple who kill their dog and take his heart and transplant it into their newborn baby and then the dog takes revenge on them. And the way they presented that story, I mean, already the story is so fascinating. I would love to personally just read that, but seeing it on screen was, was really fun to see. And there's this other story that June writes about this man drowning in Pepsi-Cola, which I thought was really fun to see as well and I really enjoyed those sequences but I don't know how well they aligned with the rest of the story which is very kind of muted sad very much like grounded in a real world and I thought that was quite curious because like you know she's the director of the lure I feel like Jennifer and June's sensibilities like really align so well with um Agnieszka's so the way that it didn't feel as cohesive to me as I hoped it would be was kind of frustrating to watch. There's this one like musical sequence where Jennifer and June they're about to be sent to Broadmoor and they imagine that it's going to be this like paradise and they there's this whole like song and dance sequence. And I that felt like very aligned with the lure to me and I wish it did more of that. So, yeah, I guess it didn't live up to what I was expecting from this director. Well, yeah, I was on the Biffa jury last week and, and on Sunday we actually gave joint lead performance to Letitia Wright and Tamara Lawrence as June and Jennifer. And I think even the people that were like, oh, I don't think that it entirely works, still a lot of the time have an appreciation for how well they perform, both individually, but also as a kind of singular entity. Like, was that the case for you, Hafa? Like, did you kind of still get to appreciate great acting? It was funny because even though I thought they were very good 
I thought the kids were much better. I was really spellbound by those two kids by the earlier scenes of the two together, of really understanding the beginning of their world building, the early dynamics with the family before they retreated completely, the, the school scenes. I was so very interested in that. And when Letitia and Tamara came into play, I was not as engaged and, and perhaps didn't give them the attention or the credit that their performances deserve because my mind was still so very connected to the earlier chapter of the film, which I thought was stronger. But even so, I, th- I think they are very good and they do their best with what they're given. It is one of those films that I wanted to love because this is a very invented director. I think the story in which is based on is a really interesting story. And as I said, there are moments of true inspiration in there that were just stunted by by the moments that are a little less inspired when they're teenagers before they go into Broadmoor. That middle section there to me just felt a bit contrived. But yeah, I love. I think Letitia Wright is one very interesting performer. I think she plays off people very well in a very chameleonic way without ever not feeling like it's her, if that makes sense. So I like seeing her on screen. I think the fact that they won, was it joint lead performance? That, joint lead, yeah. yeah. We don't have gendered performances in the Biffers now. So we, it's not actor, actress, it's ensemble, lead, supporting and joint lead. They definitely deserve that, I think, just because it's a testament to how well they played off each other. And they felt such, you know, as twins do, they felt like such a connected unit and they have really had this symbiotic relationship off each other maybe even codependent. Yeah, it's hard to imagine one without the other. So I definitely do think giving them both an award is a testament to how well they work together. Yeah, I found myself weirdly feeling more moved by this because I feel like the way that Letitia Wright is being treated in the media is horrifying. There was a Hollywood Reporter article that came out recently and I think that actually added a layer of depth to the sort of insidious race stuff that is like happening to these two young, quite vulnerable black women in the 80s. But yeah, and, and I love that she she's heading up like a Marvel franchise and she's also making these other really interesting choices making like really little unusual films and as much as this didn't entirely kind of cohere for me it still seemed like quite a good display of talents for a lot of the people involved I I, I do think Agnieszka is still a very interesting director and I will be interested to see what she does next what about you I Anna is there anything else that you want to mention about the silent twins before we move on to some more stop motion actually that's we've got twins and stop motion this week there's one scene I really enjoyed where they're both teenagers and they go meet these boys and I think it's Jennifer who has sex for the first time and then she goes to write in her diary like right after and then I wrote this down she's like one of the best days of my life I had sex before marriage sorry god (laughs) I I laughed so hard I thought (laughs) just the plainness of it I thought it was so so great um to add to that actually to hear the interiority of these characters I really enjoyed that aspect because I I think, you know, the way that these girls, they elect to stay silent, you could just kind of ride that gimmick where they never talk and then they feel less, I guess in that sense, they would feel less real to you. You know, as they were in real life, people didn't understand them. So the fact that the film took the time and care to kind of, you know, recreate their stories and give them some interiority, that was an aspect I really enjoyed. 
I want to say one final complaint. When I saw <laughs> that Michael Smiley was in that film, I call him the Irish Tin Roth. I think he's great. I was so excited he was in it. And he's in it for like three minutes. No, I wish we had more Michael Smiley. Michael Smiley often really underused. Like I watch, I liked Luther and I watch seasons of Luther and I'm just like, what are you doing? You have this man in your cast. Why is he getting two lines of dialogue every episode? Yeah, he is great. Justice for Michael Smiley. But yeah, let's get some scores on this. Uh, Hafa, do you want to go first? I would give it a solid 3-3-2. I was not... I wanted to see it. wasn't on my top watch list, but I was interested. I enjoyed it in certain parts, so enjoyment is a solid 3. But overall, there would be a 2 because it had me until it lost me and it left me frustrated. So unfortunately, yeah, I ended up with a 2. So no deep impact. Um, <laughs> what, what about Anna? What about you? I would say freeze across the board. The names attached were really enticing to me, especially Agnieszka. But it was a film that did pass me by. I think I appreciated the film for what it is, but it didn't really grab me that much. And I, I think there were so many interesting elements to play with that it didn't really take advantage of i think there was a lot of potential there that it didn't necessarily live up to so yeah i'd say freeze across the board yeah i'm probably a four three three yeah there, there was plenty to admire i'm sort of glad that this sort of very strange little film gets made and that the talents of letitia wright get on board with these sort of things and nadine marshall to me is always such a joy to see but three in retrospect and um but it's yes still looking forward to see what this group do next next up pinocchio you're listening to truth and movies this episode is brought to you by movie a curated streaming service showing exceptional films from around the globe from iconic directors to emerging auteurs there's always something new to discover on the platform after being so devastated by After Sun, I wanted to switch gears into something hilarious and audacious, and The African Desperate from Martin Sims proved just the ticket. It's a piercing art world satire with a trippy, achingly cool aesthetic, and I couldn't recommend it enough. I'm currently catching up with Lars von Trier's cult show The Kingdom from the early 90s. Movie going into miniseries is huge, and The Kingdom Exodus is a must-watch event. If you've not seen the original series before, you can also stream newly restored versions of both seasons now on Mubi. The new series begins on November 27th, with new episodes premiering weekly all through to Christmas. With Mubi, each and every film is hand-selected by their dedicated team of curators. You can choose from an eclectic mix of timeless classics, award-winning masterpieces and festival-fresh gems. It's like having your own personal film festival, streaming anytime, anywhere. Try movie free for 30 days at movie.com slash LWLies. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash LWLies for a whole month of great cinema for free. Pinocchio is Carlo Collodi's classic tale of a wooden marionette who is magically brought to life in order to mend the heart of a grieving woodcarver named Geppetto. Guillermo del Toro reimagines the tale as a stop-motion musical following the mischievous and disobedient adventures of Pinocchio and his pursuit of a place in the world. Hafa, am I remembering this correctly that you saw this, like, twice in one day? 
three times in 36 hours because I was doing a junket with the team and they only showed us the beginning of the film. So I saw that in the morning. Then the next day I went to the press junket because I had to write my review. And then I went to the world premiere because I was covering the premiere itself. So I watched that film at least the first 30 minutes, three times in 36 hours and the whole film twice in a space of eight hours. And I would have watched it twice more. I, I loved it. Well, I mean, I know that you're a big Del Toro fan. Like, so was this something that you like was really on your radar in the in the build up? Yeah, I love Del Toro. He would have been up there in my list of favorite directors of all time. Even when he makes something that isn't necessarily my cup of tea, I still love it. I think he's one of the most inventive, most passionate directors to have ever worked. He has such a sincere admiration for what cinema can do in all its forms and he's so daring and this has been a passion project of his for almost 15 years we've been hearing about this project for quite some time if he wanted it to do in a really large scale the scale it deserves and that it ended up with so when Netflix came with the money I was very excited I've been waiting for the past two years hoping the film will pop up in festivals um, the first look was one of the coolest little snippets of films I've seen in in recent years and I am still very spellbound by it if it wasn't for After Sun this would have been my favorite film of the year I I love it I think what he does with this is incredible it feels like a fresh tale and we've seen this story time and time and time again yeah I mean I know that um Del Toro is a big fan of Little White Lies the magazine so it is very possible he also is a fan of the podcast and he is hearing Oh my god if you are if you're listening to this Guillermo I love you my my contact information is on the details <laughs> Ayana, what about you is Pinocchio a story that you really love and that you were excited to see another version of I mean the only other version I've seen is the Disney one and I watched that when I was a kid so I don't remember it perfectly but there are certain images that stick in my mind like his nose growing every time he lies and him being swallowed by the whale and you know him trying to get out of there but I what Guillermo does with this story I thought it was so magical I saw it at London Film Festival as well and um it was just really fun to see it with this crowd who felt so engaged the entire time in a way that I it didn't really feel it that way for weirdly most of the films I saw at the festival but when I was watching it I kept thinking how would this film affect me if I was a kid and I thought about the films that have stuck with me that I did watch when I was a kid and one example I would say is Coraline that film absolutely terrified me when I was like what 11 years old or something but even despite how how scared of of it I was it was just so magical and transporting and there are these images that get seared into your mind with that film and I think you could say the same for Pinocchio I think like any kid who would watch this like would just love it dearly and grab onto it and hold it tight because it does feel kind of like a Henry Selick film in that way where it is stop motion and I think you can see the you know there's just this love and care put into the physicality of a of a stop motion film that just feels really artificial in a 3D animated medium. You don't really get that same thing. So I I love this film a lot. And I think what it does with the story of Pinocchio is really interesting and just kind of grounding it, you know, in the World War Two politics. And, you know, grounding it in that reality, I think was really just fascinating. And the way that, you know, even with these kinds of ideas, it still feels 
accessible and you know if you're a kid that would be very scary but it would be very educational in that way but not in a way that's still I don't want to say entertaining but you know what I mean yeah no it does feel that kind of people underestimate and I think it's it's one of the reasons why maybe Pixar adaptations have kind of gone off a bit for me they they kind of underestimate how much darkness children can really appreciate and engage with and I I loved the Disney film of this I I, I do feel like I'm a little bit kind of talking to a resident young person uh, Ayana and that like thankfully you are too young that you missed the terrifying Roberto Bignini um, adaptation of Pinocchio which is one of the more disturbing things I've ever seen whatever Robert Zemeckis did earlier this year it simply cannot be as bad as that one was I have why do you think it is this is something that someone like Del Toro like really sticks with why it's like a story that we keep coming back to this idea of the puppet that wants to be a real boy before i fully go into this i just want to say that my favorite pinocchio before this pinocchio was a film that went straight to video called the new adventures of pinocchio and you have udo kier in drag and it is absolutely unhinged it didn't get a cinema release but it was always on tv on brazilian television for reasons i have never fully uncovered so that is a very surrealist Think if Bunuel got some money to make Pinocchio on open television. It's a little bit like that. So, yeah, I was excited to see what Del Toro was going to do because something that he said time and time again when speaking about this film is that he wanted to make disobedience a virtue. And I feel like this sort of rebellion is something that is very present in his work and the understanding of monsters as a a vital part of human existence this this obscurity this darkness this constant conflict of bad and good and finding the beauty in this gray area nothing is inherently bad nothing is inherently good he's very good in approaching this anti-dichotomy if uh if i can call it that and not only that he is a perfectionist he is a big nerd he wants things to look exactly how he visualizes this in his head and i think him bringing mark gustafson as a co-director was a very very good interesting choice because he understood he was not necessarily out of his depth but he didn't have the experience necessary with stop motion to bring his vision to life so he partnered with gustafson and he had a team of animators that was outstanding when he came to london it was very very cool and i'm geeking out a little bit because he came into the room with the puppet for Pinocchio, um, we could hold it in our hands. It was incredible. It's a little work of art. I went to see the exhibition of the film in Paris. And it's truly, it's pure artistry. Every single detail, the thought that goes behind it. I don't think there is anyone or maybe it would be a handful of people that would have been so meddling love with the idea they had in their head and the vision they wanted to bring to life that they would commit in the way that Del Toro did. Um, it was over a thousand days of production. This was absolutely massive and looking at the behind the scenes is very moving I, and the film is very moving I I cried and I cried in the morning when I first saw it I cried in the afternoon when I saw it again I cried it once more when I and I know it's coming and it's still very moving uh, this concept of pleasure island but this idea of punishment as 
saying you need to change yourself is the ultimate punishment. This idea of perpetually looking for a change that you know is not going to come, that you're not able to do, is is very haunting. So I'm going to stop talking. I could stop. I could talk about this for ages. I think it's beautiful, but I'm very glad the doctor got to make it. I mean, please do. That's what a podcast is for. Yeah, it's just me <laughs> blabbing about going on and on and on. And, and the characters that he brings to life are just Sebastian J. Cricket. I ah. loved him. Yeah, it's just so good. Uh, yeah. Well, we haven't really touched on the voice performances yet. Ayana, is there some kind of highlights or, or lowlights within that group for you? Am I right in saying that Kate Blanchett was the monkey? Yes. What? How did I not pick <laughs> that up? <laughs> I, <laughs> like, I didn't say anything while the credits were going on. And then it came up with, I can't remember the monkey's name now. Do you remember? Yes, yeah, Pazatura. Yeah. Colin Spazatira, Spazatura. Kate Blanchett. And I was like, what what how did that even come about she she truly disappeared into the role of a monkey she owned that that is a very surprising choice where it's like you gotta assume it's like we got Kate Blanchett she's willing to do something but that's what they went with I didn't notice that at all that's awesome yeah and Christopher Ford sings he does beautifully he's very good I liked Ewan McGregor a lot as well. Just the felt very whimsical. He felt a very good fit for Sebastian J. Cricket. That was a character I really enjoyed. Just be also, you know, beyond the voice, like him like living in his little in his little house in Pinocchio was really cute as well. I love some animated interior design. I remember coming out of the film and I was with Cam, who is literally lies and everyone else's resident animation expert. And he was telling me, Hafa, if Sebastian J. Cricket was next to Pinocchio, because of the um, perspective, they must have had a massive Pinocchio head. I need to see the massive Pinocchio head. And we found it's, it's literally massive. It's the most massive Pinocchio head. And there's this photo of Del Toro next to it. And it's incredible. It's like a meter wide Pinocchio head. God, it's just the ambition of the man. It's so much passion, so much work. There's just, there's no shortcuts here. It's all in the details. It's so incredibly realized. This might be my favorite Pinocchio. I mean, as much as that Udo Kier one does sound quite good. <laughs> Maybe there's the next film club. We all watch Udo Kier and Drag and Pinocchio. But Ayana, for you, as your second Pinocchio, how, how are we doing? This is a pretty high standard you've maintained. You haven't gone into the Roberto Benigni, the flop era. I've um, unfortunately been very unadventurous in my Pinocchio exploration, apparently. I haven't even heard of the one that you mentioned, by the way. The only people that remember it are kind of millennials who kind of remember the joke of like how crap it was. Like, I don't think it has any other relevance in terms of like cinema history. <laughs> Yeah, but I do think that this surpasses the Disney one. As much as like as how iconic that one is, I think Guillermo's version just elevates it so much. The detail of how Pinocchio's nose grows. And it's not like that Disney one where it just kind of like extends. It's like this kind of grotesque like like he just like spurts a branch almost and like it's kind of weird to describe it this way because he's literally just wood but it felt like body horror-esque in a way and it made me kind of squirm a little bit and I really enjoyed that detail I think in ways that the Disney film didn't really grapple with like just the oddness of like this wooden boy who you know his whose body 
obviously operates in a different way than a than a human would and just like how kind of like kind of grotesque like being made of wood would be I think like the film played around with that very well and I think that really worked out for the best when they're trying to get out with the whale and like his nose is like growing to make a bridge and stuff I thought that element was really cool as well yeah, I mean, I, he, it's so nice to be a fan of Guillermo del Toro because whether he's sort of defending Martin Scorsese on Twitter, making a stop motion show, doing like a body horror episodes of his recent TV show, it's just he just doesn't disappoint. He's such an earnest guy. I woke up this morning and he was tweeting about Avatar. <laughs> <laughs> it's been so long since we saw a movie movie and it's kept thinking of Harry Styles in Venice but he's such a fanboy and he uplifts everyone he's just he said he would give his life if Scorsese could live a bit more and I would give some years of mine so he could live a bit more he proves that you can still be extremely online and still be able to you know be a genius <laughs> yeah I keep thinking of one day Ryan Johnson Betty Jenkins and Guillermo del Toro should just sit down and talk about being incredibly online while also putting out incredible stuff in the world. It is tough because I know, particularly with Twitter at the moment, we're, we're all very online, but the decision to leave, given it everything that's going on there. But I just feel like if Guillermo's there and Barry's there, I just I can't, I can't I never go leave. <laughs> just talking about it again, it warms my heart. And I'm happy that we talk a lot about streaming and it's not a conversation to get into right now, but... I'm thrilled to think of all the families, of all the people who are going to be able to see this on Netflix. And they might go into it thinking it's just a Pinocchio animated film. And they will have important conversations with their kids. This will create different memories. Um, Yeah, such a beautiful film. So I'm excited. I'm excited to see it on Netflix. So what scores would you give this beautiful film, Hatha? Oh, to me, it's a five across the board. I was incredibly excited about this. I loved it. I've watched it like four times already. It isn't even out. And I think it's perfect. It is uh, as perfect as a film can get. See, this is why you you have all these films to catch up on, because you just keep rewatching. Pinocchio. This is true. I need to stop rewatching Pinocchio. Otherwise, I cannot watch British people having steamy, sexy times on Netflix. Yeah. Well, it's, you know, breaking class barriers. There's two layers to that. <laughs> Ariana, what about you? What are your scores? Four for expectations, just because I didn't really vibe with Nightmare Alley that much. But, you know, a Guillermo movie is always an event, so I was still excited for it. Four for enjoyment. It's a beautiful film and I had a great time. And then five in retrospect. I think, like, thinking about it more and more and just the artistry involved and the whole story and everything... I think it's also incredibly well done and I can't pick any faults of it. So four, four, five. Yeah, I mean, we are incredibly in sync today, Anna. Um, yeah, I'm also four, four, five. I think what happens in retrospect after you finish it is you start appreciating the craft of it and the ambition of it and just you know how much effort had to go into kind of doing something fresh with such a familiar tale. So yes, absolutely wonderful stuff from one of cinema's contemporary greats. Next up, Film Club. The Dark Mirror. A man is found murdered and witnesses have identified a woman leaving his apartment. However, it becomes apparent that the woman has a twin and so finding out which one is the killer seems impossible. Ayana, much of a film noir fan? I mean, is this your sort of thing? Um, honestly, I'm so deeply ignorant about <laughs> all of film noir. I've watched like some of the classics, obviously, you know, like Orson Welles and 
I had never heard about this film until this week. But I have to say I really enjoyed it. I don't think I've seen any of uh, Olivia de, de Havilland's films before and I thought she was really she was really great. I also just wanted to say, like, the one thing that jumped out of me from watching this film was how the heck did they make it in, like, what, 1946? Like, how did they do the whole, how did they do the twins thing? Because, like, I mean, sure, it's easy now with, like, technology and all that, but, like, the camera moves in this when the twins are in the same frame. I can imagine, like, if you have, like, the camera staying still and, you know, the twins move around and all that, you can just, like put one frame on top of the other but like the camera moves when they're in the same room i'm so intrigued about like how the heck they they made this i have no idea i just kind of assume it's like old school movie magic <laughs> like you know you hear about like like citizen kane or something where you know for zooms they actually had like sets that were like slowly coming apart so they could get certain shots but yeah no it's remarkably seamless <laughs> they, yeah I mean, this is not like, you know, a film that like most people have seen. It's not that famous. If if it's kind of known for anything, it's more like this is the time where Olivia de Havilland sort of got into method acting and that kind of changed her performance style. What, what did you make of her in this? Yeah, it's interesting because like I, I haven't really, like my knowledge of film noir is much shallower than I think it should be. I have done noir vember a couple of years, like last year really dove into a little bit more, which was really lovely. And it's impressive to think that Robert Yodemak, I don't know if this is how you say his last name, so apologies if any of these Yodemaks are listening to this, but he done The Killers in the same year. And that's one of my favorite film noirs. And Ava Gardner is everything. It's just wonderful. But I had not seen this film before. And I thought it was wonderful. As we were saying, the technique of having the juxtaposition of the twins. And then I'm Brazilian, so all good telenovelas have a twin plot twist. Someone else enters and was like, that's not me, it's her. She tried to kill me. So when that happens, I'm always like, we know it's coming, but it's still so thrilling. And then you have one twin that wears black and one twin that wears white and all of that. And Ayana, you were saying you haven't watched anything with Olivia de Havilland. Have you watched Gone with the Wind by any chance? No, I actually haven't. That's like my biggest blind spot ever. <laughs> no, it's okay. I was just curious because I'm like, oh, it's, it's the one. I love I- how many disclaimers they have to put on Gone with yeah. the Wind. This is a much less yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, be Maybe I'll make that my New Year's resolution to watch Gone with the Wind, but it'll be, no, inter- it'll be interesting no. to see it in... <laughs> 2023. Watch Pinocchio four more times. That seems to be the key to happiness. Yeah, watch the other Pinocchio. Yeah, but I thought it was great. Yeah, what I kind of found so enjoyable was the kind of like pop psychology side of it. Like, you know, some of the ideas are so funny, as well as it being like quite a really solid thriller. Like the whole thing of like experts just asking the scientists, like, with twins, is it true there's an evil one? I I thought it was funny like that they had to get a whole expert to be like how am I going to figure out the difference between the two of them and he's like the personality and it's not as if when you first meet the twins one is clearly evil and one is the nicer <laughs> one <laughs> it is really cool when they do the sequences where they're looking at the blotch the, the pictures and that thing is so funny because you could put a little song in the background and they're just like one of them is saying 
this is a murdered person and there's blood and the other is like oh this is an umbrella (laughs) (laughs) at one point he reacts so strongly to her saying of the like raw such dress like it looks like a mask and it was like aha evil (laughs) (laughs) I, i also like the thing that i i remember i had a pair of twins as friends when i was in school and you know when you're like 12, 13, you're super insecure about the way you look. And then I always wondered, if you look the same, the level of attractiveness, is this an added layer of insecurity when you're a woman and you're thinking, now I have to work even more on my personality because if someone finds me hot, there's someone that's just as hot, but cooler than me. I don't know where I'm going with this tangential, but I don't always see this in twin films where they're like, why do you like me and not my sister? We look exactly the same, so it cannot be just our appearance. Why am I cooler than my sister? So I like that kind of psychological play as well. I think it was interesting. Are you saying you understand why one of the twins started murdering people? A hundred percent. I'm not a twin, but I have a sister who's very close in age and she's hotter than I am. And that was really <laughs> hard for me. That really made me develop some personality. I mean, if if there's ever a reason to murder, it's... Because um, your twin is hotter than you. Somebody. Yes, your twin. Yeah, I never introduced any of my friends to my sister. I'm like, I hope you die alone. No, but now we're now we're great friends. Bye, but if you're listening to this, <laughs> that would be quite a harsh thing to hear. Like you're tuning into a podcast that maybe like my sister's going to be a guest on, and like hear like all these kind of plans of like I get why you would want your sister dead. <laughs> <laughs> she knows it all. We're great friends now. But yeah, I mean, I think what I was really pleased with this one is like in terms of, I mean, I quite like film noir, but there is an element of kind of sometimes it gets a bit samey when you're watching a lot of it. I've done a November before and I was really ready for it December to come by the end. But this is like, this is really fun as well. Like it's not a heavy film noir. I think that's what I really liked about it. It's it's got a lot of like really silly elements, but then also Olivia de Havilland's performance, I think is so blimmin' good. Real testimony to like method acting, making someone even better than they had been prior. I'm interested to read more about her going into method acting because I thought she was very good. But I, I also thought it was a really good match of like actor to director. From what I know, he's he came from German expressionism and the way that comes across in this film was really interesting. There's like this one scene, like the sisters have a bit of a confrontation and then they're like in the bedroom and I think it's the one in the black dress, Terry, who's like standing in the dark and she's like bathed in darkness and also wearing a black dress. And I thought that was such an interesting shot. Very obvious what it's trying to express, but I still thought it was a very cool shot to look at. Yeah, and legitimately scary. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's interesting the because we were talking about how they shot it, and there's all these plays with the mirror, and you're seeing one of them in the mirror, and the other isn't. It's an other layer of death into bringing this to life that I feel like I am personally out of death coming in on it, and I'm going to go into a rabbit hole into how they've done it, because, yeah, it's just these corners and these mirrors and these angles and everything's just working around them. Yeah, it's it's funny that you mentioned like that Aria Guillermo del Toro talking about Avatar and about like it's we're seeing a proper movie, but like I kind of felt that watching this where it was kind of like people used to look like real people and like make huge amounts of effort to make shots work and it's so gorgeous, like that kind of gauzy black and white. I just I loved it. I just thought it was such a feast. I'm proud to say this was my suggestion for film club, so I can take full credit. <laughs> So you're not doing the Lindsay Lohan twin films that I always forget the name. 
I thought that Parent was really Trap. Great. There we go. Oh my god, that's my so, like one of my favorite movies of all time. There we go. We have and I haven't, I haven't seen the original of that one either, so there's another twin film blind spot of mine. Oh, uh, original to Parent Trap actually isn't very good. Um, Parent Trap remake is better, but Parent Trap remake is mostly interesting because you can see how Lindsay Lohan forgot how to act, which is very strange because it's just like, but you had it naturally as a child. <laughs> and like, you've become like just so stiff on screen not to kind of be too cruel to Lindsay Lohan she's she's been through a lot but she's no um yeah Lila spare her a little bit spare some compassion Lindsay Lohan hey well David Jenkins gave her a big shout out that his kind of Christmas season was going to commence with the new Lindsay Lohan Netflix film so you know we we haven't been overly harsh as a as a (laughs) as a podcast to Lindsay kid I just watched that film and it's just exactly what you expect it's just lovely sometimes so before we wrap up, uh, so Ayana, you are now going to do a bit more of a deep dive into some film noirs. That's an exciting thing ahead. Uh, Half is going to watch Pinocchio six more times. <laughs> and we're both, well, we're all going to try and track down how on earth Robert Siodmak pulled this off because it, it really, really has aged very well. I think the whole way where you have Olivia de Havilland playing two distinct characters even if one is evil in a very silly way. So if you've got thoughts on these films, you can email truthandmovies at tcolondon.com or tweet us at LWLies. Next week, it's a James Cameron special where we'll be reviewing Avatar 2, The Way of Water, and diving into some of the director's previous blockbusters. Thanks very much for tuning in. And if you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Truth and Movies is hosted by me, Leila Latif, and my guests this week were Hafez Alice Ross and Ayana Murray. The podcast is produced by TCO London and edited by Bob Stankus.